Welcome to The Form Guide, inspiring conversations about our mental health and well-being. This week in a special edition, we're in conversation with John Flint, the former Group CEO of HSBC. Thank you for tuning in. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this very special edition of the Form Guide, where I'm going to be uh, in conversation with uh, John Flint. So welcome, everyone. Thank you for uh, spending the time with us this morning. Uh, John, welcome to you. How are you today? I'm very well, Rob. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Well, it's going to be uh, an interesting discussion. So welcome to uh, to everybody on the LinkedIn Live as well. Sam Brown, Sarah Restall, um, good to see you both there. So, um, John, we're going to get into a broad ranging discussion for Mental Health Awareness Week on sort of leadership perspectives on the mental health and, and well-being agenda. Um, and um, I can't wait to get into uh, to some of the questions. But, but first of all, the question that I always start with, and that one is, is how are you today out of 10? As you can see, I'm a eight out of 10 today, very good form. I'm coming off the back of some low form, actually. Um, but as I discussed with you earlier in the week, I've managed to exercise for the first time with long COVID. Um, and so far, fingers crossed, the symptoms haven't kicked in. So good form for me, very good form. How about you? Yeah, uh, I'm happy to report I'm the same. I'm at least an eight. Um, I've got a sore back, which is slowing me down a bit, but um, that's an age thing. I think there's no, no better explanation than that. I'm getting a bit old. <laughs> but otherwise, um, all, all, all is good. I'm really looking forward to, to this session. I've got a really interesting week ahead as well. And next week, I get to go and see my parents for the first time for, for what seems like ages. So um, a lot to look forward to. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Well, good, good to hear that your back is getting better. And um, what, 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 a, what would a perfect 10 day look like uh, for you, John? What would, uh, what would be uh, the components of a perfect 10 day if such a thing exists? Um, yeah, so I think, you know, when I wake up, the, the first thing I do, there's always a bit of a mental checklist around my people. So a perfect day would start with me knowing that all of my people are in a good place, everybody's safe and well. Not, there's nothing to worry about. So, you know, my family, my friends. When I've done that, um, perfect day would start with a swim um, and then an enormous breakfast, um, preferably with some pancakes um, and some really good coffee. And then the rest of the day, if I could spend some time with smart people doing something interesting, it doesn't really matter what, but being in a room with smart people is, is a huge privilege. Solving problems, fixing stuff, building stuff, whatever it is. Um, if there was some of that in the rest of the day and the opportunity to read something that I wanted to read as opposed to you know, work-related stuff that you have to read. Yeah. So discretionary reading, um, that, that would get me pretty close to a 10, I think. Yeah, brilliant. I love that. And uh, I love the idea of earning that enormous breakfast with the morning swim. Um, so uh, everybody on the various chats, if you could uh, let us know what your uh, breakfast would be, your top breakfast for well-being, that would be good. And if you're happy to share your form score along the way, no pressure, but I'd be keen to know how, how we're doing in the room. Um, I, I also love that idea of discretionary reading. I think it's something that when we get busy, it, it sort of falls away, doesn't it? But actually taking the pleasure to read something that is, is interesting and stimulating. Absolutely right. And that's yeah. I've had a lot of free time in the last few months, and I've been doing just that. Um, I've read all the things that I've been wanting to read for ages, but never had the time to do. 
and the good news is that the list is still the list in front of me is still very very long so um, I won't be bored <laughs> yeah brilliant yeah I loved it. Bill Gates and his reading weeks where he'd sort of take himself off and consume stuff and you know it does spark off creativity and ideas so um, yeah I love that great uh, a great tip for everyone so some good things coming through on the chat smoked salmon avocado and scrambled scrambled eggs the breakfast of champions good to you Gail you're a seven out of ten another pancake fan uh, a full Irish breakfast Claire love it absolutely love it right good stuff so we're going to do the the quick fire round um and um please feel free to uh play along on the chat everyone so i'm going to pose john some questions that we haven't really asked john to prepare for and it's if mental health were a something what would it be so please put your comments on the chat and john for you if uh, mental health were an animal what would it be uh, a whale a whale. I, I, whale. I imagine. Can I imagine that whales have mental health? So, yeah, yeah. The, the association between mental health and the whale for me is a strong one. I imagine they have mental health, and I imagine because of what we're doing to the planet, um, it's not very good at the moment. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that idea. The um, yeah. And, and the tranquility of, of, of whales being in the sea, but then, you know, the, the fact that it can be quite sort of violent and, and erratic if we look at the killer whales too. So yeah, really interesting. Um, okay, so if mental health were a color, what color comes to mind for you, John? Oh, blue. Yeah, I'm with you, why, why blue? Uh, I think it's, it exists at every end of the spectrum, right? I mean, blue can be associated with sadness, but blue can be associated with blue skies and the ocean and swimming and all the happy things for me. So, yeah, I think blue blue um, captures all parts of the spectrum for me. Yeah, and I'm with you. And, and we chose blue, actually, as I'll show you a few there, the, the colours of the, the top form scores. Um, again, that sort of vibrancy um, and thinking of blue sky. And I love that idea of, you know, actually, I'm going to stay on nine because my form score has just jumped already from uh, spending a bit of time with you, John. Um, the, the idea, um, my favourite emoji um, to send people when they're struggling is the one with the sun behind the clouds, because there is a blue sky, even if we feel that the world is grey, just waiting to be uh, unveiled. Um, uh, we're getting hedgehog. I'm loving that. We're getting eagle on the chat. And I've, the first one of time I've ever heard this one at the mental health sloth. So thanks for contributing. Um, so, John, if mental health uh, were a food, what springs to mind for you? Oh, well, I've already played pancakes. Um, <laughs> well, po porridge, I guess. Um, yeah, I yeah. love it. Why, yeah, you love it. Why? What, what, what is it about porridge that represents well, it's a, it? It's kind of, for me, the ultimate comfort food. Yeah. So, um, and I, I'm not, I don't really, I'm one of those people that eats to live rather than lives to eat. So um, if I'm feeling that I need some comfort food, it's probably because I'm not having a very good time. Um, and porridge is always an easy go to. Yeah, yeah, very good. Yeah, I'm a big porridge fan myself, particularly as a, as a cyclist. Um, if mental health were a song, John, what, what springs to mind? I mean, I did select Eye of the Tiger specifically for you, actually. Um, I wondered. Uh, yeah, I wondered. I, I did. I'm I've, yeah. I've been saving that one for you. Um, but <laughs> if mental health were a song, what, what would it be? Mental health and a song. So, so I'm going to cheat a bit. It's not, it's not a song. It's a piece of music. So um, have you watched The West Wing? Yes, Okay, so I love the West Wing. Yeah. Um, I know anything about American politics. I learned it from, from the West Wing. W one of the characters gets shot and he survives, but he suffers from PTSD. And there's a wonderful scene where 
Um, in the series, the cellist Yo-Yo Ma comes in to perform for the president and his guests, and he plays the, the, the very famous um, cello concerto. Um, I think it's number one. And it's a, it's a beautiful scene, but the particular character, Josh, has flashbacks, and they cover the, all of the trauma and the recovery around PTSD, which is, which was brilliant. And it was probably the first time I learned anything or had any insights into PTSD. But and that piece of music is played so much on the radio. Every time I hear it, I go back to the West Wing. I go back to that character, PTSD and mental health. So it's a very strong association, but I don't think anyone's ever sung any words to it. So maybe, <laughs> it's, not, maybe it's not a good answer. Yeah, no, it is. And I should probably reframe my question as to what, what piece of music is, is mental health, because that's totally valid. And I, I love the West Wing. I'm definitely going to check out that and we'll post a link to the song in the notes when we publish this. Um, the... Um, we're going to talk about leadership, but there's some great leadership examples out of the West Wing as well. But I do love the way the president puts his jacket on. Um, I can't do it. I'm too sort of big in the shoulders for it. But he, he just flings the jacket over. It's wonderful. So I kind of picture you in a board meeting, John, you know, putting your jacket on like the uh, like the president. Um, OK, so if uh, mental health um, were a holiday destination, um, what would it be for you, John? And we're seeing a good good few uh, comments on the chat. The Cure Friday and Somewhere in Time by John Barry. Great. I'm going to put a playlist together of these. But holiday destination for you, John. Um, Italy, I think. Um, again, the kind of it's it's got everything in it. It's got the history, the Renaissance, the amazing cities of Florence and Milan and Rome, where there's so much to learn, so much you can lose yourself in, so much opportunity to just get a different perspective on life today. Um, and then when all of that's finished, there's great food and there's beaches and beautiful countryside. So Italy for me. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I, I love that. I'm a big fan of uh, going to Rome and um, Florence, as has been mentioned on the chat too. Brilliant. Okay, um, final one in the quickfire round. If mental health were a sound, what sort of sound springs to mind for, for you? Oh, this is easy. So the, the choir at St. Paul's Cathedral. Wow. Um, there's no other sound. I haven't experienced any other sound like it. And, and if anybody who lives in London or has got access to it, now that we're opening up again, even song, five o'clock, um, the choir is spectacular and yeah there's no other sound like it for me yeah fantastic and there is something about um, you know all of those sort of voices coming together which um, again reminds me a bit of our mental health that you know, there's the highs there's the lows but you know working well together um, very good so um, I'm going to try and try and put that all together in, a, in an image for you John um, so I think we are um, we're in Italy um, and we've, um, you know, we've seen whales swimming off the coast um, where we are in Italy. Um, strangely, the St. Paul's uh, choir is actually performing for us while we sit outside a, a, a taverna and, and having some nice pasta or pizza. Um, and um, we, we've heard um, the, uh, the, 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 the piece of music that you mentioned and there is this amazing blue sky that looks a bit like the my background there being with us so uh, i'm enjoying that, that that thought there john sounds good right um thanks for everybody uh, contributing um it's great great to see um so we're going to talk about leadership we're going to talk about leadership through these these challenging times we're going to talk about leadership in respect of well-being and mental health in the workplace um but john i'd be keen to understand a little bit about your journey to to ceo at hsbc if um um you know you obviously are the former ceo of hsbc keen to understand that journey to to getting there sure well I 
I, I knew from a really early age I wanted to be a banker, and, and this, this bit some people find a bit sad, but I, uh, I first connected with Hong Kong Bank, as it then was, when, when I was a teenager. My headmaster helped me connect with the bank when I was 14 or 15, because I knew then I wanted to be a banker and that I wanted to travel. And this bank had this amazing graduate trainee program called the International Officer Program that allowed you to do just that, to, to travel. So I, um, I connected with them. They said, go away and get a degree and then come back and apply, which I did. And I got into this International Officer Graduate Trainee Program. It was a wonderful organization. You know, at the time, it was a medium-sized regional Asian bank. But I, you know, the, the first key to, I guess, my fortune in the bank, fortunes in the bank, was that um, I fit, you know, I found a place at my first attempt where the culture and values of the firm were very much aligned with mine. I felt I felt at home. And there were two things about that organization that were different. Um, well, many things that were different, but two things that stand out. When I joined, it was very made very clear to me that I was joining something much bigger than myself and that I would always be expected to put the needs of the organization first. So I think there was something, uh, it was never explicitly described as, as a servant leadership mentality, but there was something about that that I think was present in, in Hong Kong Bank at the time. Um, and then I, the second thing that was different was we weren't just another bank because we played if you like, central bank functions or quasi-central bank functions in Hong Kong. So mm. we had this enormous responsibility. And those two features, you know, that this you're serving something bigger than yourself and, and the bank is more than just a bank, appealed to me massively. So I felt at home very quickly. First point, I fit. Second point, I guess, was uh, I, I enjoyed really good sponsorship all through my career. Um, I never sought it. I never actually went out and asked people to sponsor me or mentor me, but through time, some amazing people did just that. They took me under their wing and they saw something in me that they wanted to develop and, and they did. And I, I'm, I'm hugely fortunate to, to, to people, probably too many to mention, but um, you know, Mike Powell, uh, Stuart Gulliver in particular, both of them played a huge role part in my development at HSBC, Douglas Flint, the, the former chairman as well. I learned an enormous amount from, now I, pro I will have offended a whole bunch of people by not mentioning, but because <laughs> I, I was lucky, there were, there, were, there were too many, too many to mention. And then um, I guess the, the final thing I'll, I'll kind of leave on the table for people is whenever I was given a choice as to what I did next or what route I took, I learned to take the hardest route, um, which might sound a bit counterintuitive, but it always served me well because I kept learning more. Um, if, you, if you do something that's easy, you're probably not going to learn that much. If you do something that's hard, you're going to get tested. And I, over time, I consistently chose the hard, hardest path and it worked for me. So I, I fit in the organization my, I enjoyed an amazing sponsorship all the way through my career from some very generous people. Um, and I worked damned hard as well. And then, so, so having written to them at the age of 14, um, very fortunate to progress through nine countries, some amazing jobs, and end up um, in the chief executive seat. 
Fantastic. What a great, uh, what a great journey. What a great story. And, um, it's interesting you mentioned you didn't seek out that sponsorship, but it, it came your way. Why do you think that was? Um, well, it's, it's probably a question best asked of the people who sponsored me, but having sponsored people myself, I can, I can infer an answer, which is you, you, you see potential in people. You see something about them where you think, well, that's worth developing. I'm going to put my energy into helping them move forward because they've got some skills or some attributes or some values. You know, I think for me, again, throughout my career, my rapid progression was mostly values-based. You know, in, in, all of, in all of the roles that I did, there was always a better trader, a better salesperson, a better structurer, you know, whatever. There was always some, somebody, you know, frankly, better than me. Or that was always my perspective. But I often ended up being elevated above them. And I think looking back at my experiences and the key moments in my career, I think values, my values and my integrity, my stubbornness at times probably made a big difference. And and that I think speaks really highly of the organization that I was in. That yeah. That's my perspective. I think it, it sends really, really strong positive signals about the health of the culture of the of the organization that I was lucky to join. Um, yeah. So that I think that's why. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, brilliant. And uh, I, I love the idea of uh, your trademark being taking the difficult route. Um, and, and I guess we'll talk about that when we come on to the, the healthiest human system a little bit. So keen to get into that. Um, what, what would you say your kind of preferred leadership styles are and influences, John? Um, I'm really not sure, Rob, to be honest, what, what the preferred ones are. I mean, I think, you know, Influences, and you know, until you join the workforce, your biggest influences are your parents and your grandparents and you know, your, your, your tribe, right? And they teach you all the basic rules of life. And then when you, when you get into the workforce, when I reflect back, I think I was quite good at observing other people. You know, I'm classically introverted. Most people who know me know that about me. Um, and like a lot of introverts, I'm happy to sit and observe other people and analyze and kind of reflect on what I was seeing. And I, I like to think that over the course of my career, well, in that 30-year journey through the organization, I was exposed to a whole you know, bunch of different leadership styles, management styles. And I, I like to think I, I took something from all of them. Um, you know, and I, one, thing, one thing that became apparent, actually, or a, a, a moment of clarity that crystallized for me after I left the bank, when, when people were, you know, people reach out and want some guidance or you know, a bit of coaching or whatever. Um, and often they've got a problem with their boss, um, you know. Um, and one of my reflections is actually over a long period, you know, over a long career, you're not just going to be blessed with great leaders and great leadership. You're going to experience a range. And if you're smart about it, even if you have one of those tough periods where you've got a boss that you don't think is great, you can learn a lot from them. You, because learning how not to be is just as instructive as learning how to be. Yeah. Right? So I, it's hard for me to, to kind of express preferred leadership styles. You know, I, I don't, I'm, I don't warm to big egos. I, you know, I've got an aversion to narcissism. I like the kind of, I have a preference, I guess, for the humble understated, type 
but I can't get any more specific than that. And, and I so my, my big reflection is it doesn't matter what leadership you're experiencing at the time. You can take something from it. You can always learn something from it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's right. And you're right, you can learn a huge amount from how not to do things as well as how to do them. It's, uh, yeah. it's very true. And seeing adversity as an opportunity, I think, is is, is very interesting. Um, what, what about your leadership philosophy? I guess you've touched on it a little bit, but could you expand on that? Yeah, it's a big word, but, you know, I've had 30 years and then a year to kind of sit back and reflect and read other stuff. And I would probably... If I'm, if I'm going to be as bold as to suggest I've got a philosophy, I would say I boil it down to two things. The first is that the most profound responsibility of any leader is to create an environment in which the people they're leading can be at their best and can fulfill their potential. Okay? So it's, it's a big statement, but I don't think anything should ever surpass that. If you have the privilege of leadership, your most profound responsibility is to create an environment for those you're leading to be at their best and to fulfill to fulfill their potential. So, so that's kind of the, the ambition, if you like. And then the second part of my philosophy is to note that in practice, I think there's only two ways to lead people. Um, the first is what I would call positive leadership, where you give people a positive reason to choose to follow you, okay? They might want to follow you because of your values or your intellect or your vision for the future or your work ethic, um, the way you treat people, whatever. It doesn't really matter, but you inspire people and they make an active, positive choice to follow you. The second way to lead people is to recognize the power that you have and to prey on, the, prey on the insecurities of the people you're leading and to use fear. Follow me or else. Follow me or I will fire you. Follow me or I will give you a bad appraisal. Follow me or, or I will exclude you. And, you know, that, my big reflection, I guess, from a practical perspective of leadership um, is that there's two, only two ways to do it. Now, th there's a really inconvenient truth, Rob, in this, which is, in the short term, both methods work. If you want to move something forward in the short term, you can use positive leadership. You can also use negative leadership. You can get stuff done by scaring people, by using fear, by using a lack of psychological safety as a way to, 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 to get something done. In the long run, I remain totally convinced this, you know, the negative leadership is damaging. I would also build an argument to say it's immoral, but you know we've only got forty-five minutes. We need we need a <laughs> series to go through all of that stuff. So <laughs> yes. if there's a philosophy, it's that every leader should start with an understanding that their biggest responsibility is to create the right environment for their people, and then to recognise that when you get it, when you step into that arena and you start leading, you've got two choices: positive or negative, um, and don't get suckered into the negative one because it, it will work in the short term. 
yeah. Does that does that make sense? It makes absolute sense, and and the the way you put it across is is quite beautiful, actually. And we've spoken about the analogy between you know leadership in the workplace and parenting. And I, I know as a as a, a parent trying to do his best and not doing very well at times that leading by you know sort of fear and threatening and all of that with children doesn't doesn't work. And yet I still resort to it more than I should. Whereas positive leadership and inspiring to follow, um, you know, we can learn a lot from how we interact with our parents children can't we yeah yeah i think it, it is curious right it, it's it's an unwritten kind of rule of parenting that everybody's trying their best you know the kind of the, the expectation i set up for leaders of doing the best to create the right environment that's what parents are doing we're, we're all trying without a manual or without any pre-qualification we're all trying to help our kids fulfill their potential and be at their best why why should that obligation that moral imperative be any different to a leader who is given responsibility for other human beings? I don't think it should be any different. And maybe it's not, but if it, it if people are working on that assumption, then it's certainly not talking about it in those terms. Yeah. So I like the analogy of, of the parent thing and, 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 and I think it works. But. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think some leaders, some CEOs could probably look at how they're managing their employees compared to how they're parenting their children and, and compare the two and see what happens. Um, I can't believe it. We're, we're sort of 28 minutes into our hour and uh, we're barely getting into it. John, we probably need yeah. two hours for this discussion, but let's get into um, something I know people are keen to uh, hear a bit more about. And everyone keep some questions coming on the Q&A on the Zoom and in the chat on the LinkedIn Live. We'll, we will com- um, allocate some time for questions questions um but john tell us about the uh, the healthiest human system please sure yeah so um so just b- before i kind of get into that just one other comment i guess on on leadership i think leadership has always got to be contextual and by that i mean good leaders should be able to kind of diagnose the situation and come up with a solution for that situation some people can get quite a long way in big big organizations operating to operating very consistently to a playbook so they have one way you know they have one thing that they do they you know they're the person that always hits their numbers or they're the person that is good at taking out costs or the person that's good at you know building a workforce quickly it doesn't matter what it is and they will just repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat i think the best leaders that i've observed are good at leading in a context and the context for my ambition to build the healthiest human system in financial services was that now, I inherited the leadership of this wonderful organization at a particular time in its history when it needed a bit of a reset from a human perspective. You know, we'd, we'd come out of this really traumatic DPA um, with US law enforcement. Um, it had been a hard slog and the workforce, in my view, my diagnosis was we were fatigued. We were a bit afraid. We were a bit afraid to make you know, bold banking decisions. Um, we'd lost some confidence and I wanted to change it. So I had, you know, the three or four months between being announced as the chief exec and then, and then stepping into the role, I had time to think about obviously all of the strategic stuff, the hard strategy, what are we going to do? Where are we going to compete? How will we allocate our resources? So the, the, what we were going to do, but I was also spending a lot of time thinking about, okay, how am I going to lead it? And, and how do I, want to signal to the organization that things were going to change a little bit. And on my first day, um, the end of the first day as chief exec, I did a conference call with, with the staff and just introduced myself and 
And I'd been given a set of briefing notes by my comms team to kind of say, this is what you should say. Um, and as I normally do, I kind of put that to one side and said what I wanted to say. <laughs> and I announced to everybody that we were going to build a healthy human system in financial services. And it, everybody heard that at the same time. So it wasn't the case that I'd, I'd workshopped this with my ex-co for three months and that they knew I was going to announce it. It was my ambition that I launched on the day. Um, and the words only came to me on the day. You know, I, the spirit of what I was trying to do was had been clear for a few weeks, but the words came came to me on the day. And it was that. It was a leadership ambition. Um, it set some conversations alight in the organization, people wanting to know what it was. And the the um, the really interesting thing was the initial response from most people was great. We want to do this. Send me the PowerPoint that tells me what I need to do. And of course, I del deliberately was never going to do that because my diagnosis as the leader at the time was that the last thing we needed was another PowerPoint from head office. And over the next 15 months, I guess, we, you know, the conversation around building the healthiest human system moved from my ambition to being an invitation to leaders across the organization. And the reason that that, you know, that was important was, you know, leadership's contextual. I wasn't leading a team of hundred of a hundred people in a single site that I could see and meet, I was leading leaders. We had 235,000 people in 60 odd countries and I couldn't sit in, in, office, in an office in either London or Hong Kong and diagnose what the leadership challenge was in each of those businesses. You know, some of the businesses were world-class businesses that were growing fast. They could recruit whoever they wanted. They were admired. Some of our businesses were being restructured or in turnaround mode. Some were small, in the context of their markets and might have been struggling a little. So what I wanted leaders to do was step up and, and accept the invitation to lead themselves and to do their own diagnosis. And I had to hold that tension for a while because people kept wanting me to tell them what to do. So it was that. It was a leadership ambition that turned into an invitation to other leaders. Its primary objective was really to reduce fear in the organisation so we could get people operating at their best and we could get the organisation towards its, its full potential. Um, and of all the things that I did in my career, that's probably the one thing that I'm proudest of. Uh, and the, I wouldn't have said that on the day that I left. I say it now almost two years afterwards, because almost every day somebody talks to me about it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's lovely. I get, I'm very fortunate. I get wonderful messages from people, but it's still, it captured people's imaginations. Um, yeah. and, it, and it got people talking about life at work in a way that we needed to do. We needed to change it. And um, so, yeah, again, we don't have enough time to, to go into all the detail, but, but that was it. Yeah, and just a couple of comments that I was just on on the chat, and then an observation from me. So Gail talks about you know the term psychological safety and the steps we can make it a reality. But I guess as a CEO coming out with that vision and that, and that leadership objective, um, that helps create psychological safety and gives your leaders the yeah you know, the remit to go and to go and implement that across the organisation. And then Humberto, HSBC is a, a better place to work uh, because of you. Another anonymous comment, we miss you at HSBC. Our culture change fundamentally under your watch and that won't be forgotten. So, yeah, that 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 impact is resonating here on the, the chat, you know, over, over a year later, which is great to see. Um, 
you use the words fatigued, afraid, uh, and, and lacking in confidence in respect of the um, how you felt people were feeling when you inherited the CEO job. I guess a lot of organisations, uh, people will be feeling those uh, adjectives right now, um, fatigued, afraid, and, and suffering from confidence as a result you know, of the pandemic. Um, and I guess you've, you know, you've seen that from a position of, of distance, but what do you think it'll be like for, for those leading through the, the pandemic in the coming months? Yeah, well, the first, the first thing I must say, Rob, is as you've pointed out, I, I'm, I haven't led through this pandemic. I've had the privilege of observing this. So the first thing I must do is salute everybody who has been in a leadership position yeah. through, because, you know, I, I would be absolutely certain that you've given it more than 100% and that, um, you, you're exhausted, I imagine, in, in, in many ways. So those who are doing it, I, I really do, I do salute you. I think keeping a sense of perspective through these periods of crisis is important. Um, Recognising that crises are very rarely short-lived. You know, one of my mentors taught me that crises come in waves. You need to survive the first wave and then get ready for the next wave that's going to hit you and then get ready for the one after that, etc. So I, th I think it's important to have a, a sense of perspective and to and to recognise this is a, these crises can be a bit of an endurance event. I think recognise that a, you know, try and be optimistic. Crises like this are a, an opportunity to prove yourself. Um, you know, the, if you think about a long career, you probably spend maybe ten percent of it in crisis management mode. Well, the ninety percent of the time that you're not in crisis. Um, that's all prep for the times that you are in crisis. You know, that's all the training. It's like training for an event. The 90% of it is you're just preparing and training for the, for the big event. So be optimistic and, and be excited about the fact you've got an opportunity to step up now and prove that you're the right person and the right leader. And then most importantly, recognize that people are looking up. They're looking for guidance. They're looking for comfort. You know, the, the kind of, I guess the basic psychology doesn't change through our lifetimes. When you're afraid... Um, you go looking for your mum or your dad. When you get into a crisis like this, and there's been a lot to be afraid of through this one, it's not just been an economic crisis, it's, it's been so multi-dimensioned, multi-dimensional. Um, you want leadership and security and certainty from, from your boss and your leader. So recognise that and try to give it, and, and try to give it as a human being, as opposed to some strong person sitting in a corner office. Because human beings respond best to other human beings. So... Yeah, I, I salute everyone who's doing it. Re try and be optimistic and recognize it's an opportunity to prove yourself and make sure that however you're tackling it, just be human. There'll be, yeah. we'll, involve, we'll involve moments of authenticity and vulnerability. There'll be moments when you don't have the answers and you'll need to tell people that. There'll be moments when you're feeling it and you can share that. Because in my experience, people respond best to other human beings and they increasingly suspicious of of just kind of the, the strong man school yeah yeah agreed and in in, in looking forward over the, the the coming months as we transition through the, the the next phase of these challenging times what do you think good leadership looks like um yeah look i think it's 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 at one level, you know, everything I've said about positive leadership over negative leadership, I think still resonates. Give people, th think, think about leadership through the lens of followership. 
Okay, if, if you're if you're trying to figure out what leadership is, think about the, your own career and the people that you would you've chosen to follow and why. Why did you choose to follow them? And then as you're embarking on your own leadership journey, be clear in your mind what reasons you're giving people to want to follow you. Okay. Okay. And because this will elevate your thinking away from the reality that they will follow you because you're paying their salary, you're paying their mortgages, you're paying for their parents' healthcare or their kids' school fees or whatever it is, they will follow you. But that's not the same as giving people a reason to want to follow you. So invert leadership. Think about leadership through the lens of followership. Good leadership, I think, in its essence, happens when leaders find that mix of attributes that allow people to make a conscious choice to follow. And as we come out of the pandemic and the economy recovers, that's going to be really important because people's employment choices will will grow again and people can choose where they want to be. So good leadership, I think, is perhaps best seen through the inverse lens of followership. Does that make sense? It does indeed, yeah. And I I love the Maya Angelou quote of uh, people will remember how you made them feel. And I think that will be uh, very poignant as more job opportunities open up and people will walk with their their feet. Um, Talking of human leadership, uh, I had a very nice email sent to me. I won't call out the name, but I'll quote it. I would just like to thank Mr. Flint, who under his leadership was able to make a financial institution like HSBC more human and made me feel proud to being a part of it. And that... That's the impact of, of, of human leadership and, and creating a, a human organisation. So, John, we've, I've shared in, in the chat on the Zoom and, and my colleague Harar will share it on the, the LinkedIn, the great McKinsey article um, that pulls out a lot of these themes that we're talking about. But you know, paraphrasing and, and distilling it down, a number of participants in surveys said the most stressful job, part of their job, were, were their, their interpersonal relationships with their boss. We know that um, job satisfaction is a core component of life satisfaction, which is a, a, a metric for well-being being. We also know that employee satisfaction has strong links with various performance metrics of organisations. It's a bit of a closed question that I hope you'll expand upon, but do you think we're missing an opportunity in workplaces um, from a performance point of view to address these things? Without question, without question. And I, and I love the McKinsey article. I, I, I printed it out and I got the highlighter out and I started highlighting all the things that I agreed with and then after a while I gave up because everything was yellow. Um, <laughs> and I, I don't often find myself doing that with, 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 uh, with stuff from consulting firms, but I did like it. And, and I think that the challenge, so it, it, you read it all and it's, it, it appears obvious. A lot of it is like motherhood and apple pie. I think you've got to recognize that the, the reason that people find the boss relationship difficult is because of the power dynamics. Um, and it, actually, the, the power equation has been best uncovered to date through the Me Too movement. You know, we've begun to kind of talk about that power dynamic through that, through that lens. But that power dynamic, I think, really does inform why people get stressed about it. Um, th- there's no magic answer, but uh, other than to encourage people to take responsibility for it. If you've got a, if you've got a situation where you feel it's creating stress, you need to tell somebody and you know just a a quick a quick tip um if you if you have a relationship with your boss that you find a little bit difficult 
you need to sit down and talk about it. Don't talk about it in terms other than this is how you're making me feel. Okay, because if you tell somebody this is how you're making me feel and you do it in a constructive way, they can't disagree with you. Okay? If you challenge them on the basis of fact, strategy, behavior, they can say, no, that's not what I did was this. What I said was this. What I meant was this. When you tell somebody you have made me feel this way, it disarms them. Okay. It doesn't, they might push back once. They can't push back more than once. So if the boss relationship's a problem, take, you know, take responsibility for it and tactically find a way to use that. Do you understand that whatever, whatever the situation is, this is how I'm feeling about this. This is how you're making me feel. And my experience that takes the conversation to a different place. It, it removes the argument, it removes the fight and you're in control at that point. The boss is only one part of it. Um, but to your broad question, are we missing, are we missing a lot in terms of empowering the workforce, making sure the workforce is taking good decisions, looking after customers as well, looking after stakeholders as well. It's an enormous, um, enormously untapped area of potential for the world of business. And leaders, it bemuses me that more leaders are not stepping into the space um, and talking about it with more confidence. I've got some suspicions as to why they're not based on my own experience. Um, But I think people should, you know, leaders need to be brave. That's one of the attributes that they need to have. They need to find the courage to do it. Yeah. And you, at the top, you you spoke about taking the hard path. And I guess coming out with the, the strategy of the healthiest human system or you know, making the well-being of employees a strategic imperative of an organisation is not the easy path, is it? You know, the, following the playbook is the easy path. That's right. I mean, and, and it's um, as a leader, sometimes the easy route is to pick a goal that's very easy to measure and that is very easy to achieve. So you can stand up and say, I'm going to add five thousand people to my workforce, or I'm going to reduce my workforce by five thousand people, or I'm going to build some new office space or, and then six months or 12 months later, you can say, look, ta-da, I've done it. I'm a good leader. When you set an ambition like building the healthiest human system in an industry, it's an infinite ambition. You never finish. And you're, you're open perpetually to challenge by those you're leading because in my case, 235,000 people, I guarantee I did not create the bright environment for every one of those people to be at their best or, to fulfill their potential. I was earnestly trying to do it and I was very happy to be accountable for it. But if you set an ambition like that, you, you're vulnerable, right? There's a moment of vulnerability in it. But I think that's what good leadership should be. You know, it's a, it's a privilege. And if you don't, you know, the, well, leadership is absolutely a privilege. The yeah. privilege of leading other people, the privilege of curating a followership. Um, if you're not willing to be a bit brave in the in the pursuit of that, then actually you need to step aside and let somebody else have a go. Let somebody who is brave have a crack at it. Yeah, and I wonder if we are seeing that dynamic happen of the the leadership skills that are required being found in other other parts of the C-suite. You know, we've seen the the the, the, the importance of the chief people officer, um, and we might see some transitions in leadership coming up. I think. Um, 
Worryingly, uh, I've uh, been uh, privileged to see some research uh, where HR managers were, were surveyed and over two fifths, 43 percent in a recent survey, um, felt that mental health and well-being was not a core priority of the organisation. And I think this begs the question, John, that actually do leadership teams and CEOs believe that it should be a strategic priority? Um, are, are the CEOs out there that don't? And if not, I think we should have that debate um, that we, we, we spoke about. But if they do believe it is, why are not more organisations prioritising employee wellbeing? Yeah, well, we, you and I were meeting a few days ago. You know, could could the next event be a debate? You know, I'll, I'll propose the motion that, you know, a leader's most profound responsibility is to create the could we find somebody to oppose the motion? And I don't think we could, because I don't think anyone would really disagree with it. Um, I think the, 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 the challenge is that it's a hard thing to measure. It's a hard thing to solve for. It's a hard thing to just deterministically prove there I've achieved it. And that, that dissuades people from, from doing it. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't really know what the, the answer is, other than to encourage people. I mean, the, the one thing I would say is, um, you know, I took that leap. Um, I had 18 months in the role and the privilege of leading, you know, the organization I joined as a, as a graduate. I've already reflected that that's probably one of the things I'm probably proudest, mo most proud of. Yes, it was a scary thing to do. Right. There was a vulnerability to it. I was very exposed all the way through holding the tension for 18 months and not telling people, you know, not giving people my answer to all of their questions was a was a tough thing to do. But from a human perspective and as a leader, hugely rewarding, hugely rewarding. So, you know, I think what I will continue to do is encourage people to find, you know, find their own narrative, do their own diagnosis, find their own narrative. You know, the. Healthy human system was the right answer for me in my role in my organization at that time. My next leadership challenge might require something completely different because yeah. I'd like to think I'd like to think I've got the IQ and the EQ to diagnose it appropriately. Yeah. But until then, what I what I will continue to do is encourage leaders to find the courage to do this, to find to do the diagnosis, find their own narrative, find their ambition. And just take the leap, because from a human perspective, you won't regret it. You'll learn a lot. Um, you will inspire people. You make a difference to, to the lives of people and hopefully move this, you know, move this agenda forward. Yeah, absolutely. So one, one, one I, I totally agree. Um, and there's, there's, there's a part of me, John, uh, thinks that you've got a good, strong book on leadership within you um, that is dying to come out. Um, so um, maybe you're already writing it, but I would love to read it if you, uh, if you ever put all these thoughts down on paper. Um, so a final, final question from me, and then we'll get into a couple of audience questions. Um, just just looking, looking at hope, looking at hope for the next 12 months, the next three years in relation to the well-being in the workplace agenda. What, what are your hopes, John, in those timescales? Um, well, I'd like to think that the recognition around a leader's true responsibilities becomes increasingly accepted as a moral imperative, that you know, leaders need to lead through a positive lens, they need to inspire people. So in the next 12 months, if we can just get more people talking about leadership in those terms, then I think that will be good. That will serve the well-being broadly, and of course, um, within the well-being agenda, it will 
get oxygen into the mental health agenda as well, which is you know such a critical part of of meeting the needs of a of, of any workforce. So I think over either twelve months or even thirty six months, just keep getting oxygen into this this conversation and tr- keep encouraging people to accept the moral imperative of positive leadership. Yeah, the moral imperative of positive leadership. Love it. Um, so I'm going to try and um, distill the chats uh, to, to, to a few questions, but but one from Angela. Thanks for, for sharing. Um, John, thank you for your insights and wisdom. As a leader, do you believe there should be a level of responsibility in the individual to take responsibility for their own physical and mental health in order to impact the the, the work environment. Um, so, if we create the culture that facilitates positive well-being uh, and mental health, where does the individual accountability come in that equation? Yeah, ab- absolutely, I, I, absolutely. And I th- I've often shared with people, you know, I, I had a period in my career where I was very unhappy with my own work-life balance. The kids were young. I had an interesting job, but I, the work-life balance was a mess at the time. And I, and I was waiting for the, my boss or the organization to fix it for me. And it wasn't, and, you know, the penny dropped when I finally figured out that the only person who was going to sort this was me. So I think, you know, and I tell people that because I, you know, I, I was just banging my head against the wall for a year or so. The, the responsibility does start with you. Um, and I think leaders, all leaders really need to do is create an environment in the first instance that says, that's okay. We give you permission to do that. Um, you know, if, if you need to, um, if you need to work in a particular way, if there are things that you need that we can accommodate, then go for it. That, that, that is, um, that's absolutely, that's absolutely on the menu. So yes, it, it, I think it does start with self. Um, and even, you know, even the difficult boss relationship, take ownership of it. It starts with you. The, the, The moment you kind of abdicate responsibility, that's a moment of helplessness too often because you're waiting for somebody else. You're waiting for somebody else who's probably even busier than you are. So I think always start with, with self. Um, and then if you're, if, if you are fortunate to work in a healthy environment, if that's not enough, there'll be people around you who want to help. You know, in all of my time in, inside my old organization, um, if you put your hand up and said, I'd like some help, you got overrun with people who wanted to help you. If you didn't put your hand up, often they didn't know you needed help. And I, it could be help from a personal perspective. It could be help from a purely professional or technical perspective. It doesn't matter. But the, the notion that you're willing to ask for help, um, my experience is that more often than not, you're very pleasantly surprised with the response you get. So, yeah, it is your responsibility. If you don't have the resources yourself, ask for help. Yeah, I think that's a good one. And, and I think, you know, organizations I, I'm increasingly I work with organizations on helping give people the tools and the literacy to prioritize well-being um, because unfortunately we, we're not sort of taught that as we're growing up you know we we discover that if we've got a mental health challenge to overcome um, but we don't you know have that literacy so I think there is a um, there's, there's some good stuff organizations can do in in giving people the tools to be able to do it but organize but individuals sorry i've got to take that leap and take that choice to go and go and go for it rob i think that's right but the other thing that we mustn't forget as well is just the power of storytelling yeah so leaders in firms well anybody in firms who've got a story that illustrates a point around self-care well-being mental health whatever it is and tell the stories because you know we've all read thousands of pages around this stuff the thing that will always stick in your 
in your mind or your heart are the stories that people tell. Um, and I think that's the biggest way to kind of accelerate learning and accelerate appetite for the for this agenda. The storytelling piece is, is key. As, yeah, there is a ton of well-being stuff out there, um, which is great resource. But for me, well, for me anyway, it's the stories. When people tell you their own journeys, what they've been through, you never forget. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's why weeks like Mental Health Awareness Week are so important, because um, whilst we do see criticism that the you know, we have mental health 365 days a year and we should always be yeah. making ourselves aware, there are, there are points in time that an influx of stories can change behaviour and change perceptions. And then that momentum carries on throughout the year. But the power of storytelling certainly is, uh, is very key. Um, yeah. Good question from Brian, actually. Brian, Brian's out in Hong Kong. I know, I know Brian very well. Talks about how do we drive humanity through the different levels of an organisation and clearly leading an organisation of approaching a quarter of a million people. You can't influence everybody directly. Um, and, and how do we sort of allow that, um, that vision to filter through the organisation? How do we inspire other leaders to take up the mantle? Yeah, so, well, the good news is... That and I figured this out really, really early, really early on. Um, it's so much easier now than it used to be. So we used to, you know, if you've got 10 layers in an organization or eight layers, it used to be the case that your responsibility was to communicate to your direct reports and then trust that they would communicate to their direct, you know, and so you'd have, you know, you'd send out message A and by the time it got to the bottom of the organization, it was almost unrecognizable. Well, of course, that, you don't need to do that now. We've all got platforms. Um, you can talk to everybody in the organization at the same time. So new technology means that it's entirely possible that you can set the tone from the top. And this is why I think the role of the leader now from a human perspective is more important than it's ever been. If the person right at the top of the pyramid sets the right tone, it transmits and you can't have people, well, you can have people choosing not to listen or not to follow. <laughs> um, but they can't, they can't hide behind the defense of, I didn't get the memo. Yeah. If everybody's heard the ambition at the same time, it's clear. So I think it's it's there's no excuses now. Actually, it's a great question. There's no excuses now. You can get access to everybody. You can transmit the messages you want. Might create a bit of a bit of tension in the organisation through the ranks. Um, but if if that's a healthy tension, celebrate it. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, totally agree and good good advice there. Um, so good good comment from on the LinkedIn from uh, Stephanie Robertson uh, who I'm connected with. I think Stephanie's over at Duke University in the US. Um, I used to be a basketballer, John, so I'm a big fan of Duke. Um, okay. But she talks about uh, how do we get more senior leaders to be vulnerable and open to telling their stories and um, you know the work that we're doing with the Inside Out Leaderboard and Samantha Brown of Herbert Smith partner has commented on sharing her story. Um, but Actually, when leaders do share their stories, as you've, you've mentioned, that, that does create that culture change um, you know, pretty imminently. Do you, do you think leaders, uh, and I'm going to be careful with this question, do you think there's a, an obligation for leaders to, to have that vulnerability to, to, to share their stories when appropriate? Um, well, yeah, it, yes, that is my personal view based on you know everything everything we've talked about today, my own experience, which has allowed me to build up, if you like, a philosophy of leadership. Yes, I think that is your responsibility. And one of the reasons leaders should regard it as a responsibility is recognizing that people in the, the, the junior ends of the organization often have very unrealistic expectations of leaders. 
Um, you know, I, I, I remember just after I became chief exec, going downstairs to buy a sandwich and somebody s came up to me in the queue and said, oh my goodness, you eat sandwiches. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, funny that I eat sandwiches. But it was kind of like, you're the CEO, you can't eat sandwiches. Well, you've got to recognize that that kind of mythology exists. And one of the most useful things you can do is begin to dismantle it. Because certainly I, I would want to know, I would choose to follow another human being, a human being that was worthy of you know, my followership. Um, every now and then as a leader, you've got to tell people, you've got to show people, I think, that that's who you are. You, 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 you're fortunate, you've got a set of experiences and skills which has got you to this top role, but you're still a human being. I think, that, I think leaders who don't find the courage to do that actually just miss an opportunity. It's, it's sad for them because the, the downsides to doing it, I think, are pretty much nil. The upside, I think, is very, very significant for the people they're leading and for them as leaders. So no downside. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, you know our leaders do eat sandwiches. It's it's a, it's it's a good it's a good thing. I've heard you say that before, and it's uh, it's it's very funny. Um, we're, we're almost out of time, John. Um, this hour has just disappeared, um, um, just like it was five minutes. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Um, great interaction from everybody, and thank you so much for uh, giving up your time. I guess final question for you, John. We're trying to. Um, compile uh, a series of well-being nuggets golden nuggets the one piece of advice um or wisdom that you're happy to share on managing your well-being um what would be your your nugget that you're happy to share john well i'm, I'm going to recycle something that i was told a number of years ago but it works which is try and do something for yourself every day um, and particularly those of you in, in leadership positions or aspiring, aspiring to leadership positions, you know, there's a risk that you, you take away everything you've heard from me today and you step into the servant leadership mode and you spend all of your time thinking about everybody else. You know, that cliche, you can't pour from an empty cup is absolutely right. So make sure you're, you're during the course of the day, whatever it is, it can be going for a swim. It can be having a cup of coffee with a friend, it, whatever, but find find a few minutes for yourself every day um and that's a reasonable foundation for a good day i think fantastic so we've got well over 100 people tuning into this so all of you our challenge to you is to find a few moments for yourself today to do something for yourself guilt-free um and, it, and it role modeling healthy behaviors for those that are following as well john um thank you so much um my if i could my, my form score is a definite solid nine i'm seeing form scores rise on the chats from others as well so um appreciate you giving up your time your wisdom and i definitely look forward to reading the book when it comes out <laughs> I'm, I'm having too much fun reading to, to worry about writing <laughs> i hear you i hear you brilliant Thank you, everybody. Thanks for um, for tuning in. Wishing you a great day. This is the form guide, inspiring conversations about our mental health and well-being. Uh, please do tune in again next week. We're going to be having a chat to Avril Chester, who set up something called Cancer Central. Um, so we're going to talk about doing good, helping others, but also the intersection between our, our physical health uh, and our well-being. Once again, John, thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thanks, Rob.